When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Dogs are barking, and the day is a getting dark. As the night comes in a fallen, the dogs will lose their bark, and the silent night will shatter from the sounds inside my mind, for I'm one too many mornings and a thousand miles behind. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan one song at a time, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host of Freewheeling, Rob Kelly, and joining us this week to talk about one too many mornings from the 1964 album The Times They Are a Changing is probably one of the most newly minted Bobcats uh, we've had on the show to this point, Lindsay Davidson. Hi, Lindsay. Hi. Thank you very much for having me, Rob. Thank you so much for being here. This is so exciting. I said, I, you know, every episode when I have a new guest, I love to find out how they became a fan. And when you and I were talking about doing this, you revealed to me that you basically just started getting into Bob, what, last November? Is that right? Yep, pretty much uh, November of uh, 2019. So I'm that's amazing. A newly minted bobcat. <laughs> that is amazing to me. I mean, oh, that's such an. I can remember when I was falling in love with the music for the first time, and it was so exciting because there was so much. And this was in the '90s. This was before even all the other albums he's put out. But there was so much to get into. So I, I have to find out, like, how did this happen? Like, where, where, what happened in November 2019 that, that this, this, like, this Bob became part of your life? Well, I might be the first guest on the show that got into Bob Dylan via David Bowie and a podcast. Okay. So I started listening to, I'm a big Bowie fan, and I started listening to a podcast about David Bowie versus Bob Dylan, because it's a <laughs> comparison of the two, but you're- Oh, right. gotcha, gotcha. And so I'm a big fan of uh, music history, so they're going through their careers year by year. And I started out as a- firm Bowie stan and over the course of the show I definitely switched over to the Bob side so I just started delving into the music uh, album by album if I could do it and then song by song and found your podcast and then binged the heck out of it <laughs> <laughs> so what was it about the show I mean what was the context of they were presenting song versus song i mean how how what was the format of that because that sounds i mean i love david bowie too so i mean that's a, it's an interesting idea uh they're doing a year by year comparison so oh wow uh, okay. every year of their professional careers starting in i believe it was 65 because that was the first single that david bowie released right. and they're going all the way up until even the current day because the bowie estate is still releasing albums so they're doing year by year and then they're giving points to various projects, uh, albums, singles, if Bob Dylan does a terrible movie or <laughs> <laughs> just as a, for instance, <laughs> yes. And, uh, they can have negative points. So as you can imagine, uh, Dylan and the dead received a very negative score. <laughs> <laughs> it really threw off the curve there. Yeah. It really threw off his score that year. And so just, uh, they're going in doing a bit of context of the, what was going on in their lives at the time, what uh, side projects they were doing. So you kind of get into all of the very nitty gritty things that they're doing. Some years are bigger than others because there's just so many projects going on. So you can't get into the smaller details, but 
it's a fun look at uh, both their careers. And that's how I started getting into Dylan's music. And then because both of them have such a long career, you can go look at their, you know, Bob's performance on the concert for Bangladesh or his mm-hmm. appearance on Letterman or all of these different uh, appearances or projects they do. And so it just kind of provides a, an audiovisual format of comparing the history with the different projects. So where did you start uh, when you were actually going to get, were you doing it song by song? Or like, were you, were you getting whole albums and just going from there? How did it, how did you decide to, to go into it? Cause of course, like when I was doing it, there was no, there was no, I, there was no I, internet that yes, the God in the Paleozoic era, there was no internet. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, you had to buy a whole album at a time because there was no other way to really sample things. How did you choose to, to go about this? Um, I, they're doing kind of jumping around the years. And so with that, I was doing the same. So I would start in, I think 76. So Desire was my first album and it's still by far one of my favorites. And then they jumped up to 1997. And so I got to listen to, you know, um, oh my goodness, the album titles for time out of mind, time out of mind. Exactly. And then they, they just jumped around. And so I, jumped all over the place with Bob's career. And so I didn't get to experience it in a chronological format, but I did get to experience different things as different points in his career. So I experienced the Christian era as a, you know, over the course of multiple weeks, but (laughs) jumping around with time out of mind in the middle or down in the groove in the middle there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. Uh, So, I mean, what, uh, was there some eras that appealed to you more than others? Um, Desire is probably one of my favorite albums still. So that is probably my favorite period. Just when he went from what appears to be very personal songs uh, for um, Blood on the Tracks. Blood on the Tracks. Uh, to then going entirely the opposite direction with Desire and the Long Story song. So mm-hmm. that's probably my favorite period is his mid-70s. But I'm also a big fan of the trilogy uh, in the mid-60s as well. Mm, okay. So now have you gone on to um, – do you have everything at this point? Do you have every album? I mean, or, or do you have bootlegs? Do Have you gone on online and like looked up uh, video clips and stuff like that? I – have all of the albums downloaded on my Spotify, but I don't own any physical albums because right, right, right. I don't really listen to those. But I have downloaded every single album and have listened to pretty much all of them by this point. And then I've gone and looked. I've scoured YouTube for every buck that I can find. <laughs> <laughs> became a little fun project <laughs> to do. What do you think of him as, I mean, you haven't had a chance to see him live, of course, because right at the point where you, or have you, right? You really probably, I think the the window you had to see him live was very, very tiny. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to see him live. The concert I had tickets for was canceled due to COVID-19. Oh, no, really? I was going to make a a road trip down to uh, northern, or sorry, uh, upstate New York. But unfortunately, it got canceled. Oh, no. so I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, everything works out well for COVID. And maybe eventually I'll get to see Bob in concert. Oh, that's oh, I'm so sorry. That's <laughs> that would have been so amazing to have gotten in one concert before it all. Everything all went to hell. That would have been no, really cool. uh, I think he was doing the, the residency at the Beacon Theater in uh, New York around the time right. of getting into him. 
but I was also doing my winter exams for my degree. So he, I didn't really have the time or the money, unfortunately, to go to New York. Right. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, eventually this will be over and eventually Bob will go back on tour because that's is all that he, that's what he does, you know, and yeah, especially now he's got a, yeah, he's got a new record to promote. So, I mean, there's no way that we'll all be going back to it eventually. It's going to be glorious when we're all going to get a chance to see. What did you think? I, again, I hate to throw this to people because it's, it's such a huge topic and we don't have a lot of time to just talk about it, but you've, you've got to experience a new album uh, as a brand new fan. And that's not something that all of us have get to do. What did you think just initially or so far of uh, rough and rowdy ways? I, I like the album. I don't think I am at the point in my Bob fandom where I can listen to it all in one sitting and appreciate it. Um, okay. I know you've mentioned to other guests in the past that different songs will appeal to you at, or mean something to you at a specific moment right. and, or they start to take on new meaning as you get older. Absolutely. I like yes. the individual songs of uh, rough and rowdy ways, but I just, it's not something I can sit down and listen to straight through. It's its not a driving album to me. Um, mm-hmm. I, I like it, but I have to listen to it in bits and pieces. Some of these songs, though, are going to make their way into the cultural ether, though. I <laughs> can't imagine a Halloween podcast or a Halloween uh, playlist without my own version of you on it. <laughs> thats I never thought of it. But yeah, that is a perfect mood setting song you could sort of picture like vincent price or something doing some sort oh, of yeah. he was around some sort of weird cover of that or, or uh, i mean bob and vincent price look like each other at point <laughs> anyway so uh, are, are you like the mustache uh, in the early 2000s absolutely are your now are your friends any of your friends into this into bob as well unfortunately no my friends are um they span the spectrum of music but none of them are really into bob dylan I did have one friend that she was a big fan of uh, Boots of Spanish Leather. I was okay. like, oh, I'm going to be talking about a song on that album. <laughs> She's like, cool, good job. <laughs> even to my parents who were in university in the late 70s, early 80s, they said, Bob was old when we were young. Why are you <laughs> listening to him? <laughs> so they, they're not a big uh not, not necessarily they're not supportive, but they just question why. <laughs> I, and, hey, you know, I can understand that. Some you do you, uh, listen to whatever music you feel like. Absolutely. I mean, what is your feeling about one of the things that I, when I was, again, when I was getting into Bob and I was learning and discovering him that, that I really started to appreciate was the fact that the material, any given song does not sound the same through time. And that is very atypical to a lot of musicians. Uh, you know, I mean, like I, when I was a kid, I loved Billy Joel. I still love Billy Joel, but Billy Joel plays the songs the way they sound on the record. That's his, that's the way he likes to do it. But Bob Dylan absolutely does not do that. So when you started getting the live records and you were hearing, you know, like, okay, let's, let's, for instance, one too many mornings, we could talk about it, of course, like on the bootleg series from volume four, which is the, the Bob Dylan live 1966. That's when he was doing this song with the band and it sounds absolutely nothing like the version on, on times are changing. What was your, when you heard all that, were you like, this is awesome. Or were you kind of like, well, or did you take it like one sort of song at a time? I've been trying to take it one song at a time that 
I appreciate the uh, studio recorded albums for being what they are. They are a full, complete piece by themselves. But the live versions are, I think, where the songs really come alive. And One Too Many Mornings is a perfect example of that, that the, as you said, the album version sounds nothing like the live version. (laughs) And he just, I think it's that he interprets them each individual night because the, whatever he feels like saying through that song on that particular day is going to do. I don't think Bob feels particularly beholden to his audience in that way. The Live 66 version is a perfect example of that. Mm -hmm. Because I don't think that was the version they wanted to hear. No, I mean, the the song on Times They Are a Change In, of course. I mean, on an album uh, like that, which is very, very, as Bob himself described it, finger-pointing. Yep. I mean, it was was done to be very, very uh, uh, uncompromising. I mean, even even the, the sleeve photo... Uh, is reminiscent of like a Woody Guthrie photo of like a Dorothea Lang kind of thing where he's it's it looks stark... like a dust pole uh, yeah Prussian exactly. era photo exactly yeah. yeah you would if someone had said if you didn't know who it was and you'd say this was taken of a migrant farmer in 1912 you would you'd believe it you wouldn't think that it was a you know 1964 exactly. uh, recording artist but I mean so you've got songs like Times Are Changing and the Ballad of Hollis Brown and the Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll. All of these songs that are just very much, you know, with God on our side in your face and are very much black and white. This is it. This is the right side of this. uh, This is the right side of this particular argument. And this is what I'm saying. And then all of a sudden you've got this quiet little finger picking song where it is probably Bob Dylan at his most. Uh, understanding of someone else's point of view. I mean, even Don't Think Twice It's All Right, which we covered just a couple episodes ago, has got Bob kind of at the end sort of digging at his uh, presumed paramour, sort of saying, well, you know, you kind of wasted my time. But here, uh, it's incredibly kind. I mean, I, I already quoted the opening lyric, and then the second verse is from the crossroads of my doorstep. My eyes, they start to fade as I turn my head back to the room where my love and I have laid, and I gaze back to the street, the sidewalk, and the sign, and I'm one too many mornings and a thousand miles behind. And the vocal performance that he brings to it is so beautiful and delicate, the way it's just, it's this reverie, it's this thing of, I'm going back and I'm looking at all the places that that this person and I used to spend time at, and it's all gone now, and I'm just sort of sad that it's happened, and it's it's... Just again, the performance of it is so different than anything else on the record. It is pretty startling, even though they're all acoustic songs, they're all just Bob. But nevertheless, this thing really jumps out at you in its sort of quietness. Exactly. That for an album that I believe a couple songs prior was Hollis Brown, which is oh man, so which is got like getting kicked in the face. Yeah, it just it kicks you in the face with just the <laughs> desolation of it. Yeah. Bow, 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 for eight minutes. You know, you're like, all right, already. <laughs> this is a kid's, the kids have got gangrene. All right, let me up from this. So, Bob, please give me a break here. Yeah, this. I mean, so what, what was it about this song that made you want to discuss it on the show? Well, this song has always just spoken to me, always. It's been 11 months. <laughs> but um, <laughs> this song just really, it, it cut like a knife. Uh, when I first listened to it, because for someone, as you said, on an album of all finger pointing songs, this one, it's, it is sad. It is desolate in its emotion in the same way that much of the album is, 
but there is an understanding there that there there's no blame being placed on the subject of uh, the narrator's affection that no one is getting blamed for their part in this. It's just they've reached an impasse of where they both need to go in their separate directions that it can't continue on because they just don't see the same point of view or they don't want the same things. And that the, the imagery of this, that reading through the lyrics of this song, I can see that image. I can see this so clearly that it's a New York street, that it's very late at night or early in the morning. And it's, it's that feeling of isolation when you were so close to someone before that just really spoke to me about this song. And I, I love it. It's my favorite song on the album. Yeah. I mean, in the third verse, he continues on. It's a restless, hungry feeling. And the word restless, of course, pops out on this record uh, a couple times because you've got Russell's farewell uh, at the end of the record that don't mean no one no good when everything I'm saying you can say just as good you're right from your side and I'm right from mine we're both just one too many mornings and a thousand miles behind and I you know again the, it's not usual for Bob to really say or the character of Bob uh, in in these songs to say you know you're right from your side and right I'm right from mine again that's a very very uh, magnanimous point of view mm-hmm. and I love the line about with everything I'm saying you can say just as good which of course is you know uniformly not true because Bob Dylan is exceptional at saying things uh, most people can't <laughs> Yeah, most people cannot say things as good as Bob Dylan. That's why Bob Dylan is Bob Dylan. But that's, an, again, a very generous thing to say that it's like, look, anything that I'm saying to you here, you could say right back to me and it would be just as effective. And, and, and yeah, I mean, again, the, the, the feeling of, of desolation, again, I use that word famously in a Dylan song, and, and isolation in that um, you, know, you can be lonely in you know, a crowded room. You know, you can be lonely on a crowded street. It's mm-hmm. it's just because there's people around doesn't mean that you're not feeling incredibly lonely. And that can happen. And this this has that wonderful feeling to it of this is somebody who is probably sitting in his apartment, looking out the window, looking at the street that he lives on and or, or she lives on. It doesn't, of course, it doesn't have to be a, a man the or a woman in particular. Yeah, the narrator. And just watching the activity going on and knowing it's the next morning. And and the line, just the, the phrase of one too many mornings, um, that's something Bob was so good at and is still still is. Well, the is, wordplay there is great as well. Right, exactly. I mean, finding the... The one too many mornings is just an interesting phrase and then putting in thousand miles uh, because, of course, you could think of it literally. I mean, many people have assumed that this song is about his girlfriend at the time, Suze Rotolo, mm-hmm. who he was sort of uh, in and out with at different times. Uh, and then but then, you know, then you've got it as metaphorically, too, is that, you know, I've been with people uh, both romantic and non-romantic, where I've been in the same room with them, and I have felt like I'm a thousand miles away from them, even though we were in the same room. Exactly. So it's the, the 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 metaphor is just so wonderful, wonderfully evocative, and it gives you so much room for you, the listener, to kind of lean in and take what you get from it. And that's again, that's one of the most remarkable things about the song. That is only what like two minutes and forty seconds long. And in that two minutes and forty seconds, you get everything about the end of this relationship that this person or the narrator has that they've just woken up one too many times to the cold light of day that, and they're mourning this relationship as just 
it's over, that we're a thousand miles apart in terms of what we want or where we are in our lives. And that for two minutes and 40 seconds, you get the entire mourning process for this person, that it's just fantastic. Yeah, I said it is really one of the one of the great series of imageries. And again, we I talked about it in the um, the opening with the first verse with the the dogs will lose their bark. Bob loves mentioning dogs and he songs. really loves he's a, a dog. He's dog. a big dog guy, Joker man or whatever. He loves he loves the, he there's well, a couple uh, of cat- grain of sand. The dog barking. The, the, there's a literal dog barking. If dogs run free, the man, the man love. I love dogs too. I love cats. I have a cat. He doesn't mention cats all that much but dogs appear in his songs quite a bit but the um the silent night will shatter from the sounds inside my mind and again like something shattering is you know like a violent image it's a it's a it's you know when glass shatters it's a horrible horrible sound and yet the idea of what I take from it again, the opening verse is like, you know, when you're laying in bed and it's, pa- you ever heard that rule about you should never decide anything past midnight. Yes. You should <laughs> never do that. Just whatever decision you've come to just sleep on it because when you get up in the morning, it's going to seem very different than it did at two fifteen in AM. It just, yep. and I've, I have found that to be a very useful piece of advice, but the silent light will shatter from the sounds inside my mind. So it's like the, we're, we're the song is opening on this, this person, the narrator, probably trying to get to sleep and trying to put all this out of their mind, but they can't, they just can't do it. And even that is a horribly powerful, again, violent image of I'm trying to get some mental peace here, but I can't, this thing, this thing in my head will not, will not rest. And again, for such a quiet song, this little finger picking song that he's doing, it has so much force to it. And yet again, the vocal is, it's like almost like a whisper. Exactly. That's, and I have been in breakups before where that this so perfectly encapsulates that you're trying to focus or try to do anything else and your mind keeps getting pulled, <laughs> pulled back to just all of the memories, the arguments, everything. And it's so distracting. Yeah. And so, and for this narrator who's, as you said, is probably sleeping or I imagine the narrator... I'm picturing Bob just because that's the person I can think of uh, just sitting on a, like a fire escape or just yes, yeah. at three o'clock in the morning, just staring down an empty street and just, they can't, they can't go to sleep because they can't turn their mind off and they can't stop thinking about everything that could have happened, did happen, everything where it was and what won't happen again because yeah. of this. Yeah breakup and then of course he takes this song which is again one of the one of the quieter ones on an already sort of quiet record and then he decides when he goes on tour with, <laughs> with the band in 1966 to completely upend it and it's funny because of course those concerts were bifurcated is that he had the first part where was acoustic and he just came out by himself this this song clearly could have been done in that form but he chose not to he decided to make it part of the electric part of the uh, concert with the band where it is as far away from this version as possible where you've even you've got first of all you've got the electric guitars screaming and you've got Bob's slightly stoned kind of (laughs) elastic you know one too many morning you know he's like really stretching his words out yeah oh my god and then you've got the band harmonizing 
on the chorus with the, you know, one to a thousand miles. And then you've got like Richard Manuel or behind. And it's, it's as far away from this as possible. And I think for most people, you think, well, that can't possibly work. But then when I first heard it, I went, damn, I like this version. It's not the, it's not the version of the record, but dang, I like this. That the different versions have a, a different place in your life on different playlists because the album version is is for those quiet moments versus this is you're just rocking. Yeah. And for that, I don't like to attribute too much meaning to when Bob plays a song at any particular time, but this is a breakup song and he's electrifying it in 1966. <laughs> He's kind of breaking up with his audience (laughs) because it's at this point that he then immediately goes into or just stops touring entirely. But as you said, that the, this song, I think it's the, one of the only uh, acoustic songs he did electrify for those performances. And yeah, I think that's, there's some meaning in the fact that he's just basically breaking up with the audience in the loudest way possible. (laughs) He had that line where he said, we talk about certain songs and he would say, uh, it used to go like that. Now it goes like this. <laughs> and he was just really, and I will say for me, for the longest time, um, I didn't have a bootleg of the Manchester Free Hall show, whatever you wanted to call Royal Albert Hall show, whatever it was uh, misnamed. Judas I never had, yeah, I never had that bootleg for many years. And the only clip I knew of this song was I saw something on television with Bob and it was like, I think it was an award that he got. It might've been, it might've been the Gram when he got the 1991 Grammy lifetime Achievement award and they were putting together a clip package and they had like 10 seconds of him and the band singing this song in that version. And I had never heard that to that point. And I remember being like, wow, what is that? What is, I know oh, what that, that song is. so exciting to hear that for the first time. Oh, this man, is, yeah. You only get a clip of that as opposed to the full version. Yep, yeah. Oh. And it was it, it was video of Bob leading into the microphone. And again, I think it was with Richard Manuel singing with him and I was, or, or Robbie Robertson probably. And I was like, what? Whoa, wait, what? And then later I got the bootleg and got to hear it. But yeah, for, for the longest time, it only existed in my mind for like 10 seconds. And it was just this wonderful little tease of like, what, what, what's that about? So, again, th- that he was able to transmogrify something. You would think that the reason this song works so well is because it's so quiet. It's so mournful and reflective. And then to just say, no, 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 no. I'm going to take the bass metal of the song, which is the the arrangement, which is similar to mm-hmm. Times Era Changing, and the lyrics. And I'm just going to rip everything else out and completely redo it. And it's still going to work on its own on its own different way is just, again, it's one of the reasons why you're just like, oh, this guy is just unreal. He's you know, you just can't believe it. Or how he yeah. can just, he can take the, the fine metal you said of like the base of it all. And then just entirely change everything else. And it works. Yeah. Sometimes it doesn't work. There, there are performances, so. but this really worked. And yeah. I mean, this is perfect. The, the, the electrified yeah. version. Yeah, I mean, this again, this is a song that has always been, uh, it's only been played 237 times over the course of 50 years, which is not a lot. Uh, no. It's never really left his repertoire here and there. Johnny Cash covered it 
uh, when the, when they did their sessions together. Johnny Cash himself covered it with June Carter for one of his records. It's been covered a lot, as you like, almost virtually every Bob Dylan song in the '60s has been covered yeah. uh, a lot. Uh, and then he said, it, you know, he did it. Um, it's part of the uh, the bootleg series for the Another Self Portrait. But then live wise, it appeared again in 1976, where he was just punking out. And taking these songs and just exploding them with energy. And as a bonus, I mean, first of all, again, you can't ignore the context uh, you just mentioned about, you know, in, in, when he's writing it in 1964, it's probably him talking about breaking up with Suze Rotolo. Then you get 66, he's probably talking about breaking up with his audience that wants certain things from him. Well, now we're up there. <laughs> Now we're at 1976 and we're in the hard rain record and he has just released blood on the tracks. We know that his wife in the midst of a divorce is showing up at these concerts and he is just blasting this record. And on top of it, it features an extra verse because of course, Bob can't stop screwing with things. (laughs) So after an amazing performance on hard rain, he throws in one extra verse and it's, you know, you've no right to be here and I've no right to stay until we're both one too many mornings and a thousand miles away. I mean, again, what like a punch in the throat to anyone listening? Because they know that, you know, if you're a Bob Dylan fan, you know, these are new words. And he's adding even more spite to it, which is just uh, unbelievable. Yes, that for a song that is very delicate and very understanding, he's adding a lot more malice to this one. Yeah. And to then follow it up later on in that shows by Idiot Wind and those performances <laughs> of it. That it's, he really is, does sound like he's just, he's talking to one person and he has nothing but venom for them. For like, and changing up a very delicate understanding song to just have venom in it. It's just cuts. <laughs> I mean, do you feel like in the Hard Rain version that at that point, all of the kindness that he is that the words are suggesting it's all just sarcasm in a certain way. Like, it's just like, all right, I, this is how I felt in 64, but I'm singing it now, but I don't really feel this way because again, it's it, you feel like all the gentleness in that song is, is, is not present in the guy who was standing there with the, the shirt tied around his head and everybody's just punking out on the, on the, on the song. It's almost like he's almost mocking the song in some way, the way he was doing with some of the other songs. I mean, like when he covers lay lady lay, it's all rewritten and it's rewritten in a very crude way. It's all, he's all talking about, let's go, let's go upstairs. Who really cares? I mean, he is just in a foul mood in 1976. He was not in a good place that day when that recording was done. There is nothing but uh, bitterness and uh, venom in his voice and the way he's performing that whole concert does not seem like he is in a good place emotionally or uh, just within the tour. That and unfortunately, that version of Lay Lady Lay is my absolute least favorite. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry to any fans of that. I can't stand it. <laughs> It's yeah, I'm not a big fan. I love Hard Rain, the record, like the the live version of Shelter from the Storm, which we talked about a couple episodes ago. Specifically, yes, magnificent. Uh, but yeah, the Lay Lady Lay one, I'm like, yeah, no. All right, Bob, don't don't, don't no, <laughs> don't do that one. So, but, but yeah, of I mean, my performances, this version, the '76 version, is probably one of my favorites for this song. That he's 
singing with a lot of feeling and there's a lot of emotion and expression in his uh, the actual video performance of it. And it's just a really good version. It it does not uh, it doesn't hold the same place or uh, take up the place of the original version, but it has its own separate uh, spot in my heart for this specific version. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't it wouldn't exist without that original version, and so you, you always are going to go back to the the, the, or the the original. This is the one that did, this was the original inspiration. But yeah, but you can see what he can do with it, which is kind of amazing. And then, and after that, uh, I've seen some bootleg uh, on YouTube and so some performances. There's one from around 1986, which is very gentle. He kind of goes back to it being gentle, and and also that final verse, that added verse, is gone. Uh, as well. So it was just for the hard rain and then he dropped it and it went back to the original song. So it's, again, it's not something, uh, you know, when we're talking about Bob Dylan, these numbers are, are, have to be in their own context. Most other musicians, if they played a song 237 times, that would be a lot. But for Bob Dylan, it's not a lot. Uh, he really isn't. He played it last in 2005. So it has been 15 years since he has pulled it out in, in, in concert. And so it's, I said, it's not, it, he, he performed it. Um, they messed around with it during the basement tapes too. So, yeah. I mean, it's always something that he plays with every so often. And, and, you know, and he did it on the Rolling Thunder review. It's on that, uh, that release as well. But it's just, it's not something that he obviously returns to a whole lot. And again, but it's it, it's one of those songs that it's not one of his most famous ones, but it really holds up. And it is so for a, a song so short and seemingly so simple and um, unambitious in the most in the nicest way possible. This thing is just, again, incredibly durable that you can do all these different things with it and all of them work in their own given way. Well, uh, when you're speaking with Virgil Kinsley for Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. I think he said something that really spoke to me about uh, that song is that you just kind of fall into playing it uh, when you pick up a guitar. <laughs> and that's what this song kind of does as well. Cause as you said, he played it during the basement tapes. He played it with Johnny Cash in 1969. There's a version with George Harrison in the seventies. That's right. Yes. And so right. this just, it's, as you said, it's a song that's never left his repertoire, but it's just kind of a song you fall into playing because it's such a gentle light finger picking song that I can see why he's never stopped playing it, especially just in the, the more intimate uh, personal moments of just him with a, an acoustic guitar, I guess a quiet moment during a recording session, he just kind of falls into playing it. And it's one of those songs that it's so delicate that just by yourself, it works. That's the original recording. I was doing a little bit of uh, looking up the, because uh, you mentioned that he's played it 237 times. And of those, 31 times were played during 1966 and 1976, which is only about 13% of the total performance. <laughs> and it's also like the fourth most played song from that album. But comparison-wise to a more popular, let's face it, Times They Are Changing is probably a more popular, at least well-known song. Oh, Sure. This song has appeared the same number of times on albums for like a song that is not that well known by the general public. Right. If you look at the list on BobDone.com of all the albums, it's it, there's a long list. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a really it's a long list. <laughs> and I was wondering, do you think that's kind of just uh, a quirk of what he just was designed to play around the times? But it's odd that 
for a song that is well known within the Dylan community and not very well known, I'd say probably outside of the Dylan community, it has appeared on a lot of albums. <laughs> it's interesting your comment about what what Virgil said about that it's uh, for for people that are musicians uh, just find themselves easy to play it. Obviously, Bob, you know, might be something that it just it's it, there's something. Um, fun for him to just go into that arrangement. It's just his hands just sort of fall naturally mm-hmm. into that arrangement. So therefore, it's fun to just bat it around. And I always think it is very instructive. Is what songs do Bob Dylan? What songs do, does Bob Dylan play when he's not really doing anything for recording purposes? You, I'm glad you mentioned the version he did with George Harrison. I meant to bring that up. That yeah, I mean it's that's like why bring that out of the out of the 300 songs he has to pick from at that point? Why that one? Uh, you know, to me, and it, 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 he knew that that was not going to be released. It was just him batting around with a friend, and yet that was something he decided to do. That was a song he decided to do with Johnny Cash. Yep, there's it's a song he decided to do with the band. I mean, it's when he's together with these people, he wants to bring that one out. So yeah, it's it's always interesting to me is why he does that, and maybe it's just being a musician. There's something about the chords that it's just like, oh, this is a simple little thing I can play, as opposed to you know whipping out visions of Johanna or something. Yeah, exactly. That, and I like that you had mentioned that your hands just kind of naturally fall into it. And it might just be even that there are sometimes I think things that people will do just when they're trying to think of the next thing they're going to do afterwards. Mm-hmm. This might just be the kind of the little picking that he does, and he's just thinking about maybe what's next, and it just it's a natural position for him to fall into, and it's it sounds good by himself. It's it's a truly fantastic song. Yeah, I mean, I I don't uh, I don't professionally do illustration anymore. I used to, but I still doodle when I'm at uh, meetings and stuff. And I tend to draw on little doodle paper the same three or four faces uh, oh, really? because my yeah my my hand just sort of naturally goes to certain shapes that are fun to draw. And you know, I'll draw, like I, I tend to draw like Spider Man a lot. I draw Spider Man's face a lot because there's something so primal about the image of just these big eyes with the shape and then the webbing and my hand just naturally goes and just does it all and you know most of the time they're just garbage doodles and i crumple them up and throw them in the trash and they're never seen again but once in a while there'll be one I'm like oh that actually came out pretty well but my hand just seems to want to naturally go to that shape for some reason and so there must be some something like that when you're playing music is there's some song there's some chord arrangements that you just naturally fall into and maybe this song has one of those things. And so, yeah, like you said, for a song that is not that famous outside the Dylan community, it appears a lot. There's a lot there's a lot of records here where it appears on it. So obviously it's something that he himself likes. And again, having imagine having something that you've written 55 years ago at this point, and it's, again, it's this durable. You could try it again with the band. He could pull it out if he wanted to, you know, and play it on keyboards like he's doing with Lenny, he did with Lenny Bruce or whatever. He could... Bring up to the guys, hey, Tony, Charlie, let's try this one. He could might do that again. You never know, which is one of the great things I love about him. Well, for me as a, a new Dylan fan listening to this in the first time in 2019, it was just as emotional listening to it as I'm sure for the audiences in 1964, mm-hmm. 1965. It's It really holds up. Is I know it's not a great way to say that, but it is. it does. It is just as moving today as it was when it was written and performed for the first times that's said and that's a remarkable thing so this is 
I am I am very envious of you, Lindsay, in that you get to discover this and get to go into it to the and the, the there's just so much material out there for you to discover uh, that and again I can remember the joy I had of buying a new record and then the minute I bought it and loved it, I went right back to the record store back when those were a thing, went right back to the record store and bought another one. You know, I was just like, I can't gobble these up fast enough. And now you have the benefit of an added 25 years worth of material and all this stuff on YouTube you can watch and these videos and all these things. And so I was so excited to talk to someone who was just discovering him for the first time. And I really cannot wait for you to see him live. That will be a transformative experience, even if... He plays a bunch of songs that you're kind of like, eh, I don't know about that one, or they're not versions. It will still be an amazing experience. So this is this has been so much fun to talk to you and talk to a new fan. I'm so excited for you, and I'm so glad that Bob is still adding fans 60 years into his career. That's just super. Thank you so much. I, I can't wait for uh, my first concert, yes. Hopefully everything is safe for everyone very shortly. And um, But, yeah. I can't wait for the next album to be able to see this one live for the first time. And hopefully that sooner rather than later. Absolutely. So again, well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. This was just great getting, getting to know you and getting to talk to you. And I appreciate you willing to do this. You mentioned this is your first ever podcast and I, I know from other people that can be a little intimidating because it's like, I don't think, but you know, we just try and just have a nice conversation. I love talking to as many different kinds of fans as possible. So thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Of course, if you want to follow the show, you can go to the website, firewaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on Apple podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And of course, if you want to, we're always talking Bob over on Twitter, which is at pod underscore Dylan. And if you want to support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, you just go to patreon.com slash FW Podcast. And there you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be name checked on a show of your choice. So a big thanks to Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, and Henry Bernstein for their support of Pod Dylan. So that's good to do it, everybody. Thanks so much for listening, and we will see you later. Bye. Down the street the dogs are barking And the day is getting dark As the night comes in a falling The dogs lose their bark And the silent night will shatter From the sounds inside my mind There's one too many mornings And a thousand miles behind And my-